Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Council, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo, and today's guest is Ian Robertson, SC. Ian's practice focuses primarily on commercial litigation, with a specialist interest in intellectual property. He practices in all courts in Adelaide and in the federal courts of Australia, including the High Court. Ian is incredibly experienced in handling and challenging expert witnesses, which is the focus of this episode. Ian, welcome. Hi, baby. Would you just like to tell our listeners a little bit more about you? I'm a senior counsel, so the equivalent of a QC in Australia. Controversial SC QC thing going on over here at the moment. We can talk about that later if you want. My practice is basically everything except for personal crime in the sense of people hurting people. And I try not to do children's work in the family court. But other than that, I do everything which is fun, appellate and trial. You've mentioned the difference, controversial difference between senior counsel and Queen's counsel. So do you just want to go into that? It's controversial only in South Australia at the moment where I'm based. And that's because we have been QCs for some time. And then in 2008, the year that I was appointed, it became SC. And the appointment ceased to be from the Queen, from the Governor and came directly from the Supreme Court. So the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court used to appoint SCs. The Bar Association in South Australia then decided that they were going to enter into a protocol with the government to go back to QC. So if you're an SC, you can hand your SC in, pay a token amount of money and get a QC instead. And that's what's been happening for the last two years. And there's been an impasse in South Australia, which has led to no... Silk's being appointed for the last two years, so that and that's just changed as of last week. I had no idea about that, so thank you for sharing. You've been senior counsel for about 12 years now, but what I would like to talk about is what you were like at the very beginning of your career as an advocate. How would you describe yourself at that beginning point? Uh, useless. <laughs> <laughs> you need to understand it's slightly different over here, in, certainly in South Australia, which is different from some of the other states. So we have a fused profession. So you're admitted as a barrister and a solicitor, which means, it did mean, the day that you were admitted, you could go into court and appear as counsel. And so I probably did my first trial within the first fortnight of being admitted to practice so that you understand how little I knew. I had only ever been in court once before, and that was the date on which I was admitted. So the first day I went in to do a trial was the first day I was in court for someone else and I had absolutely no idea. I had no idea what a, what marking a document for identification meant. I had no idea how to tender a document. I had no idea how to ask questions. Uh, I was completely and totally useless and notwithstanding that, my client won. So it's just luck. That sounds incredibly intimidating, frightening and also goes to show sometimes... Good facts mean that you'll win, regardless of your own efforts. Good facts and a good judge, you know, who kind of jiggles you through to the right result, even though you don't know what you mean and you don't know how to do it. I had a very good judge and he kind of jollied me through the trial, which was, now that I look back on it, quite a complex trial because I was acting for a third party and I didn't even know what a third party was. So it was intimidating but it was also really exhilarating to kind of get on your feet and try a few things. From that very first experience to getting better as an advocate was that something that it was just through experience and you learned from that or were you proactive in getting better in your advocacy skills? It's a bit of both. I made a choice of the firm I went to practice in and because it's a fused profession it was I was able to um, pick a firm that had a large amount of uh, advocacy in it. It meant that I could pursue an advocacy 
career through the firm and the firm had three in-house counsel in the firm and so it enabled me to go to court a lot. It was also an era, this is 1986, an era when um, the law was less regulated so motor vehicle accidents were all at large there was no it was not regulated in the way that it's now regulated in Australia the personal injuries workers compensation all of that was unregulated it's highly regulated now over here which means that unless you are a relatively serious have a very relatively serious accident or um, injury you can't bring a claim. That is, you can't, it, as in prohibited to bring a claim, as opposed to it's not worth bringing a claim. And so it meant that I got to go to court pretty well every week, sometimes twice a week for, for in two different trials. And it meant that by the time I left the firm and came to the bar eight years later, I'd probably done eight or 900 trials. When you were participating in those trials, were there any specific steps that you took or any resources that you used in order to improve your advocacy? And when I say resources, I'd include courses or or books within that. Probably not, because they're really, until the early 90s, people really didn't think you could teach advocacy. They thought you were born with it or you weren't. And so probably until about the early 90s, it was much of literally Gilbert and Sullivan-like trial and error. He just went down and did it. And you asked some of the other in-house advocates in my firm, how do I do this or how do I do that? The profession as a whole is generally quite helpful. So in that way, you could expand your experience through talking to others. But really, it didn't change until the early 90s when George Hample started teaching advocacy through the Australian Advocacy Institute and then I think he came across to your ends of court and taught over there as well. So um, I think George was seminal in my development as an advocate. You are an extremely experienced advocacy trainer. In fact, that's where we met in Melbourne in January 2020 for the Australian Bar Association Advanced Advocacy Course, but of of course, I'd also met you at Keeble, which is one of the advanced advocacy courses in England, I think the year before. As an advocacy trainer, what have you learnt when you're teaching students and participants? What have you learnt that has impacted your own advocacy? It just makes you a better advocate because it's very hard to coach. We say coach rather than teach over here. It's very hard to coach advocacy unless you think about it analytically and you think about what works and what doesn't work. Making yourself think about what works and what doesn't work and explaining to someone else why something works or why something doesn't work means that you take on board a lot of that own a lot of that analysis for your own benefit. And that means every time you coach you get better and every time you coach you think more about why you do something or why you don't do something sometimes to your benefit and sometimes to your detriment. Uh, Benefit in terms of getting shorter, more succinct, more quickly to the point. Detriment in the sense that you you work out that you've spent the last eight years doing something that you didn't need to do. So um, swings and roundabouts. And why do you use um, the word coach instead of teach for advocacy courses? It's a philosophy thing. I think George started it and then... Glenn Martin and Phil Greenwood, who were the first two chairs of the Advocacy Training Council, continued it. That's the Australian Advocacy Training Council, continued it. So George always used to talk about skiing because he was a very good skier, or he's a very good skier. And so he was always talking about coaching from a skiing perspective. And then this, because sport's such a huge thing in Australia, as you know, um, the kind of sporting analogy works really well over here so it's kind of like would Roger Federer go out and play a match without having a coach no of course he wouldn't he'd obviously get a coach no matter how good he is no and no matter how good he's always been and that's the same kind of thing so it doesn't matter how good an advocate you are you can always do with some coaching to work on your technique and are there any courses that you would recommend that practitioners attend Hard to say for an English audience. I mean, obviously there's Keeble, 
there are lots of courses all around the world basically teaching advocacy in the in a very similar way they use the method or the hample method or the nita method whatever you want to call it but that kind of five or six step process for coaching in australia we have three recognized courses one's called essential child advocacy which is pitched at reader level so what you'd call pupillage i guess then there's the advanced advocacy intensive which you attended bb and then we have an appellate advocacy workshop which is a weekend course so it runs friday saturday and part of sunday which is a terrific course it's kind of got a reputation for being a um an entree for application for silk so if you want to apply for silk it's the kind of thing that you ought to be doing and judges often ask why haven't you done it if you haven't and then there's two other courses that we're working on at the moment one is a remote advocacy training program to deal with the kind of covid climate and the second is a expert masterclass which you got a little taste of the preliminary of when I gave my um chat to you in melbourne in january about experts yes and we will be going on to experts in a moment but before we move on to that i did want to know from all of your experience as an excellent advocate and a highly trained advocacy coach what particular skill do you think that you have developed and helps you succeed in your cases stillness certain extent humor but stillness certainly it's the thing i admire most about good advocates how still they are and i don't don't necessarily mean that in a physical movement sense but how still their mind is when they're thinking and then advocating stillness is something i'm i'm working on and i think i've got better at over time humor i think is something i use in court more than most people do but i think that's just because it comes naturally to me in the sense that it's part of my chat so in terms of having a discussion with the court it tends to accidentally slip in and i find that if i try to contrive it it just never works and it's lame but if i just am natural in court but still work at my stillness then then it tends to work better Ian, when you are talking about stillness of mind, can you just expand on that and let us know what strategies that you have in place? Stillness of mind, I think, is a way of expressing a state of focus in court. And so it's more a case of being sufficiently prepared that you are able to switch everything else off in court and simply deal with what you have to do the most difficult time to do that is when you've got a a, a multi person bench and there are questions coming at you from more than one person at one time uh, not intended to be rude but intended to be inquiring and uh generally it's hard to take it all in at once if you're not able to focus on one question at a time and i remember when i first started to do a lot of appellate work or like when i started to do more appellate work as i was approaching silk that it was the thing that i had the greatest difficulty with which was switching off from one judge asking me a question and moving to another judge asking me a question and we have voice coaches who and performance coaches who teach at uh in the australian courses and you you now have them at keble and have had them for a few years at keble and it's a terrific development for advocacy to have that kind of training one of the coaches early on was a lady called Jarali in Australia and she helped me devise a physical means by which i could effectively cordon myself off and focus only on one judge and then i'd answer that judge's question and then i'd move to the next judge's question and at the same time not panic about trying to think about the answer to the other judge's question whilst I was dealing with this judge's question and the physical way that I do it I can't kind of show you but the physical way I do it I do it is at her recommendation about shifting of weight in the way I stand which effectively means that if I change my weight to 
try and address the second question before I finish addressing the first question, I'll basically fall over. So the physical need to focus has helped me stay still in the physical sense, but it's also helped me stay still in a mental sense and therefore concentrate on dealing with that judge's issue and then moving on to the next judge's issue. So that's what I've been practising and sometimes it works better than others. So moving on to experts, the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this was, as you'd mentioned, you'd gave this talk at the course that I had attended and it really blew my mind. And the reason for that is because on a number of courses that I have been on, a lot of the coaching was around speaking to your own witness, um, expert witness and asking them what the weaknesses on the other side were and so on. But in my field, in family, where we have joint experts and I don't have access to the expert in the same way, I can't have conferences. And really what I need to do is look at the document that they have prepared and start analysing that and seeing what the weaknesses are. And I thought that you were able to brilliantly explain how to deconstruct an expert's report in order for cross-examination or examination in chief. I just thought I'd set the background for why I wanted to have a conversation with you about that. (laughs) To be fair to everyone else who does have access to their own expert witnesses and also has the opportunity to speak to the other side's witness, because I know that that happens as well in your jurisdiction, I thought I could talk about that first with you. So when it comes to your preparation and involving experts, Where do you start? How do you ensure that they are as prepared as possible? First step is I'd like, in a perfect world, to have had some say in their instruction. So I would like to have had some input into their letter of instruction and the brief that they get to prepare their opinion, particularly if they're the applicant's expert or the plaintiff's expert because they go in blind, as it were, without the ability to at least leverage off the other experts report. So I'd like, in terms of preparation, to have had some input into the instruction. I'd like to have some input into the material that they've received. And I want to be available for them if they have any questions at that very early stage when they're getting the instruction. So before they've actually formulated a view, but when they are teasing through what they want to say or how they think they might want to say it. These are all jurisdictionally dependent things. Maybe in England you're not allowed to do this because of your ethical rules, but certainly here there's no difficulty with this. The, The only issue here is a discovery one, which is if I have a discussion with an expert and that discussion is considered by either him or by me to be or her or me to be integral or essential to the way they form their opinion, then some record of that discussion has to be kept and the other side are entitled to see it. And so there's this kind of very fine line where you tiptoe around not going through the process of actually delving into what the expert is going to say, but it's more a question of process. You know, Mr Bloggs, do you have everything you think you need or what else would you like to see or can you explain to me um, what your client's case is? I've read the pleadings but I don't understand what your case is and then I try and tell them in a kind of objective way without putting a skew on it what we say the case is without telling them what I want them to say in the expert report. That's the first step. And with your own expert witnesses, clearly you can have conferences with them And I know it's case specific, but are there any particular things that you want to know? For example, if they can highlight weaknesses on the other side and also weaknesses within your case theory so that you can start dealing with that now. Are those the sorts of questions that you ask? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the mistake that people make or some people make when dealing with expert and conferencing with experts is that they go in there and they tell the expert what the expert's opinion is, the expert actually knows what their opinion is 
They don't need to be told. And what you really should be doing or what I should be doing is to be utilising their knowledge to improve my understanding of what their conclusions are and how they reach those conclusions. So in that sense, I've done the groundwork, I've analysed their report, I've come to my own conclusions about it, but I want them to tell me what those conclusions are as clearly as they possibly can and, you know, without the jargon, if we can avoid it. And in the course of that, I want them to tell me what they think our best argument is from their expertise point of view and what they think our worst argument is and vice versa for the respondents experts so that I have some kind of bookend parameters for where I can go and where I might go with both sides of the expert evidence. One thing that I wasn't sure about that I was hoping you could help me with, the difference between being guided by the expert's knowledge and being guided by their forensic assessment. Can you (laughs) help me with that? And I can tell you where I got that from. It's this book that I'm reading, Expert's Evidence, by Dr Ian Freckleton, QC. And what I took that to mean was you can be guided by what the expert is saying and their knowledge about the area, but when it comes to their forensic assessment, there's a level of impartiality that you should have. But I wasn't sure if that was right. What do you think about that? I'm a great believer in that particular phrase. I didn't actually know it came from Ian's book. I've used it for years without attributing it to him. I'm sorry. He's a good friend. Uh, Forgive me. But Really, the essence of it is this. You're never going to be as smart as the expert in their field of expertise. You can do your best to put yourself in the best position to cross-examine and to understand so you can cross-examine them. But they've got all the knowledge and they have the best ability, you'd hope, to teach you what you need to know to do your job. What they don't have is an ability to make a judgment about what works or what does not work in court. And so you don't rely upon their forensic assessment. You occasionally have an expert who is very anti the other expert, you know, has an antipathy to the other expert. And they want you to go in boots and all on the other expert and say, you know, he's a barracker or she's a barracker or whatever the case might be. That's what I regard as a forensic assessment that they've made about what will or will not work in their case. And I tend to be pretty blunt with them and say, look, I I run that part of this case. You run the knowledge, you know much more than I do, and you will, even when this case is finished, know much more about this than than I do. But you have no idea about how to ask a question in court or how to obtain the answer that you want. So you're just going to have to leave that to me and trust in my judgment. And um, that's where the kind of demarcation lies. If they try to transgress into the forensic assessment area, I'm pretty blunt in telling them that's not their job. Thank you so much for expanding on that. And in addition to that kind of advice, or or really the guidelines that you're giving them, what other advice do you give to expert witnesses about being in court and the evidence that they're going to be giving? I try not to give them too much advice because most of them are pretty experienced. Uh, The younger ones, young in the sense of not had much court practice, and there's more and more of them because less and less things run to trial nowadays, especially in a civil jurisdiction. With them, I tend to go through the normal general stuff that I would do for a lay witness, you know, how the process works, all the rest of it. But with the experienced experts, you're really just telling them how to suck eggs and you give them their due and they know how to do all of that. They can produce their opinions as well as by themselves as with your assistance. So what I tend to do is to just remind them of a couple of things, you know, remind them about bringing their notes along and that those notes will be available to the other side reminding them that they are likely to be asked hypothetical questions and hypothetical questions that have perhaps many parts or many moving parts in the question and that when they get them then that they should be writing down the hypothetical questions or the component parts of the hypothetical question so that they fully understand the answer that they're giving and they're giving answers in logical response to the hypothecation 
So in that regard, it's just a matter of reminding them about those things, uh, reminding them that they are entitled to look at their notes, reminding them that if their notes are not sanitised in the sense that they've been writing in their copy of the respondents' experts' report, he's a dodo, has no idea what he's doing, something like that, I suggest that they get rid of that copy of his report and put some proper annotations on it, not disparaging pejorative ones that will simply open them up to an attack on credit. I've never even thought about someone writing down the hypothetical questions so that they can answer that in a logical fashion. So I will definitely be taking that on. So turning to the advocates preparation itself, because obviously, as a lawyer, we need to prepare um, before we even start speaking to the expert and as you were saying, instructing the experts and looking at what they're going to be exploring. Where do you start in that process? I think I just start reading from the report. So I'll read their report thoroughly. If it's a responding report, I'll obviously have to read the other report first to come to some kind of landing about where it is and form a preliminary view about the areas I think are in dispute Mostly nowadays, by the time I'm doing that, there's a joint expert report which actually identifies where they are at odds. So that's not a hard exercise to do. After I've looked at the joint expert report and done formed a view about it, I will start the formal analysis part of my preparation for the report. And I would normally, um, before you know, the formal side of the analysis, uh, resort to Dr. Google, etc., to find out the jargon stuff that I perhaps don't know, to give you a, an idea. I've just had a case dealing with a um, colorectal surgeon and a resection that went terribly wrong. 90% of the terms that were being used were completely foreign to me, so I had to get online and dig all that out. Now, the beauty of it is that when I started practice in 1986, I had to go to Gray's Anatomy or some other text which explained a medical term with another medical term and made it really hard to follow. Now you can get online and find all this stuff available, written for lay people, and sometimes with YouTube stuff, so you can watch the operation being done and, you know, all sorts of things that that just did not exist once upon a time or certainly weren't available to us once upon a time. So I would do all of that before I start the formal dissection of the report and then I would move to the formal dissection of the report in the way that we talked about uh, in Melbourne. Before we move to the um, formal dissection, I was just wondering if you also look at journals or books or anything else in the expert area because I know that sometimes you can find some gems but also it does feel like a bit of a needle in the haystack there's so much information out there. I tend not to unless I know the area pretty well already and I know the textbooks that I need to go to so if, it, if it's you know, basic accounting stuff which I feel very comfortable with that's fine. I can pick an accounting text off my wall and deal with it. But if it's a specialised medicine that I don't know that well, then I wouldn't embark upon it without the assistance of the expert. So I'd get the expert to tell me which things I should be reading and in particular which articles I should be reading and which articles he or she has written or which articles the other expert has written before I actually stuck my toe in the water with all that. In terms of general preparation, though, in terms of, like, what kind of books do you read for expert evidence, I think Ian and Hugh Selby's book on expert evidence is fantastic. There's an online version that you can get, which is terrific, but I still tend to use the hardback version, and I don't know what iteration it's on in now, 6th or 7th edition or something like that, and um, that's terrific. And then the other thing, just general background for experts not for a particular case they're not trying to do it for a particular case but just so I have a background about how it's done I tend to listen to 
uh, read or listen to the, some of the old trial series, the old famous British trials, those kind of things. There's, for example, a fantastic cross-examination by Edward Clark, cross-examined the principal pathologist in the Penge Bungalow murder case, you know, the one that's always been talked about on Rumpole. That cross-examination is just textbook. It's brilliant. Unlike a whole lot of the, those old British trial series, which are now out of date and you don't cross-examine like that, like they did then anymore, that particular cross-examination is for an expert is brilliant, even though they lost the case. The actual cross-examination is brilliant, and you can get that version as an audio book. So you can actually hear someone doing it with the Scottish accent and everything, and it kind of brings it to life. So that, in terms of immersing yourself in expert evidence, that's kind of something I think that's worth doing, though not necessarily to prepare for a particular case. So looking at that general preparation that you have, when you get to the formal analysis, what's the process that you undergo? I tend to analyse it by kind of critical path. So I think I talked to you in Melbourne about a app you can get for um, Android or Apple, which is called Simple Mind, which is a mapping tool, the kind of thing that you would use for, say, a flowchart to map a corporate structure or to map a family tree, which is how I came across it to start with. I build into that tool the logic of the expert report. So let's say the joint report of the two experts says an issue in the case is whether the anaesthesia should have been used at all at that time or whether there was a danger that would cause brain injury. So that's the issue is should the anaesthesia be used at all? And then to work out the competing views about that, I box it up. So this is the first step. This is the second step in the logic getting to the conclusion. So I tend to start with the conclusion. So this is his conclusion in paragraph 20.6 of the report and then work backwards from the conclusion backfilling the boxes to get the flow of the logic to get to the starting point and then when I've got to the starting point I come back through the logic to make sure I've got the logic right so I get from the major premise to the conclusion and I fully understand where that logic is and then I do the same thing with the other side's opposite conclusion about that central issue and when you do it that way you'll find pretty readily that the box that they don't agree on is one box it's not 10 boxes so you don't have to attack this expert about 10 different things you only have to establish one thing because there's only one box in the logic tree that requires you to overturn it and once you do that you've overturned the opinion so it's a very formal way that i do it some people are smart enough to do it intuitively without having to do it in that kind of long form i'm not that smart so i tend to like to see it written down either on paper or on the screen i think i can also put my hand up and say i'm definitely not that smart to do it in that way and i remember you talking about the logical fallacy and putting forward very simple premises. For example, all men are mortal. Homer is a man, therefore Homer is mortal or something like that. So is that the sort of thing, and, and I've really simplified it to three sentences here, but is that the sort of thing that one would be looking at if you're looking at the expert's conclusion, which is conclusion is X, these are the premises that are being relied on, and then exploring whether or not they're actually true or perhaps mistaken or even I'll go so far as to say a fallacy what do you think it's old I mean the Greeks have been doing this for thousands of years it's an old syllogistic approach to analysis major premise minor premise leads to conclusion and if you take the one that you just postulated which is classic Plato it's easy to see. So, you know, the other one that people often use is all horses are black, acorn is a horse, acorn is black. 
if you think about it that way and if you can reduce the opinion in that way, um, some can be, some can't be, some require more parts to the major and the minor premise, they're pretty easy to pull apart the opinions then, pull apart in the sense of understand their opinions. And then you can decide whether you want to attack the major premise or you want to attack the minor premise and what the consequence of you succeeding with your attack on the major premises and what the consequence of you succeeding in attack on the minor premises and makes the cross-examination so much easier because you're not fighting with the expert about everything. In addition to, I think you said it was the Simple Minds app that you use and then you're able to break down the conclusion and the premises of the conclusion. Are there any other tools that you use, such as chronologies or schedules of another kind for you to guess all the information that you need? Or can you just go straight into it? It depends on the case, I think. I mean, chronologies are terribly useful tools at the best of times, you know, most times. But often in terms of breaking down an expert's opinion, a chronology is not terribly useful unless they've made an error of fact. And that is so rare. They may have been asked to assume an incorrect fact, which might enable you to use a chronology to your advantage somewhere along the line. But I don't find a chronology as useful with an expert as I would, say, with a lay witness, most lay witnesses. But diagrams, Venn diagrams, I often use Venn diagrams. I don't say this very humbly, I must say, but I think I'm still the only person who's ever put a Venn diagram in a set of full court appeal submissions. Mind you, I got laughed at, so that's probably not a good idea for young advocates. But the you know, Venn diagram does very quickly point out where the area of difference might lie between different things. So... Chronologies may be useful, but probably aren't going to be the, as useful as the block analysis, you know, the critical path analysis, working out how the conclusion was reached. I need to confess that I just Googled Venn diagram while <laughs> you were speaking. Um, <laughs> just because I thought, well, I'm not, I think I know what it is, but I'm not exactly sure. So it's the Venn diagram where you have two circles or more and seeing where they overlap. Yeah, the same way we're talking about all horses are black, acorn is a horse. If you have a circle which is all horses and you have another circle which is black horses, but acorn doesn't sit within the merge of the two circles, you know there's something fundamentally wrong with the major premise. I suppose that's an incredibly simple way of getting the message across to the fact finder if we have a diagram just showing that. I think I told you before in Melbourne that I'm a frustrated mathematician, so or geometrist really. So a lot of the things I do are predicated on algebraic or geometric considerations. So if you can break something down into an algebraic equation or something approaching an algebraic equation, which is not that different to a syllogism, then you're likely to be able to identify where the point of fallacy or difficulty is with the conclusion. You know, so if 2x plus y equals 100 and you can't get it to equal 100, there's a fair chance there's something wrong with either 2x or y. That's just how I think. So, you know, the same ways I think about case analysis as a Cartesian plane, you know, with the X and Y axis and all the facts that we have to prepare for to run a trial sit on that Cartesian plane. And what we're trying to do as advocates is find the line of best fit, as statisticians would say, that takes you through as many of the coordinates as possible. And the further away from the line of best fit a particular fact is, the more likely it is that you're going to have to um, find an answer to it, otherwise you're going to lose. Thank you so much for those really helpful tips that you've given us on preparation. And if we now move on to the expert witness being in court, examination in chief or direct examination for American listeners. What mistakes do you think that lawyers make and how can this be remedied when they're tendering their expert witnesses? Certainly in a 
English common law jurisdiction, it makes a difference between whether it's civil or criminal. In criminal, you're going to have to lead all that evidence from scratch. A logical approach is normally the best approach, and you're just going to have to take it step by step from qualification through the methodology and then to application and conclusion. But in a civil case where more often than not the expert's evidence is reduced to a report, and in some jurisdictions, mine included, and the federal jurisdiction in Australia, where you're not allowed to ask any questions in examination in chief of the expert without permission from the court, it really is comes down to the examination in chief is just what's in the report. And insofar as you get any attempt to or any opportunity to do any examination in chief, it's really just to point out the things that lead to the differences in the opinions between one expert and the other. So if it's a difference in methodology, just to point out what, why they use that methodology and, and not another methodology. The main thing is, is it civil or criminal? If it's criminal, it just has to be logical and it has to be thorough and logical. So you get through from A to Z as best you can. If we look at criminal cases where the expert would be taken through their report and it goes in that logical fashion as you suggested. What do you think about advocates asking quite open questions, which mean that the expert is able to talk at length and um, narrate their evidence at large? I don't think that that's necessarily helpful. What's your view on that? Does it have to be controlled a bit more? It depends on who the expert is. If the expert is literally the person who wrote the book then there's not much point trying to hold that expert back. There was one expert who I called in a um, personal injury case involving a very large bushfire here in South Australia, and I asked him one question and his answer went for 45 minutes, I think. But he had literally written the book on the diagnosis of what was then early stages of recognising post-traumatic stress disorder. So he just sat up and everyone stood there and or sat there and was awed by his presentation. There are other ones who will simply demonstrate how little they know if you let them go on ad nauseum. So generally speaking, for most of them, I think you need a run-up and you need to set the framework And then the only thing you let them run free on is the actual conclusion. So you've set up everything else by focused questions and then you get to the end and say, so what's your conclusion? And then you just let them give their conclusion. So with cross-examination, what do you think about attacking credibility, honesty and impartiality of experts? Because I know in some jurisdictions there's a huge focus on the motive, bias and interest point, but how effective do you think that that is in your cases or generally? My opinion is that it very rarely works and just based upon that experience, it's very rarely done. So um, if you ask experts and I was at an expert evidence symposium two or three years ago, they all want you to get stuck into the other expert about their impartiality or their partiality and their bias or their barracking or whatever it is. But courts just don't like it. They don't like us having go at, at expert witnesses. And unless you have some pretty good stuff, it's just not worth the effort you know and it reminds me of an episode of yes prime minister where sir humphrey was explaining to um, jim hacker about how you discredit a report as in a um, a report prepared for government and it's basically the same four steps that he talks about in yes minister apply to discrediting an expert's opinion and my recollection of it is that the first thing you attack, and I've just adapted this for expert witnesses as opposed to what Sir Humphrey was talking about. The first thing is you attack the instructions. The second thing you do is you attack the assumptions. The third thing you do is you attack the logic or the methodology. And it's only if you don't have one of those first three things that you attack the expert themselves. That's the last refuge, really, in the scheme of things.
doesn't mean it, it can't work. It just means it really works, I think. And of course, with cross-examination, you're not necessarily or always going to be attacking the expert's opinion. You can also elicit quite useful information from them. So how do you go about that? It depends upon what your theory is about the expert. I mean, if you can live with the expert's opinion and you really, uh, all you're doing is dealing with the assumptions, it's a fairly easy exercise of just picking out the assumptions and identifying the importance of the assumption to the conclusion. Once you've done that, you've done all you need to do. Obviously, you have to ask the ultimate question in the sense of getting the expert to accept that if that assumption is incorrect or different, that the result is incorrect or different, depending on the relevance of the assumption. You mentioned hypothetical questions earlier when you're preparing your expert witness. And I was just wondering, when these hypothetical questions are put to the expert, is an answer such as, oh, that's possible, or it's feasible, is that enough? Or should you try and push further? So we're looking at probable or likely to happen. Depends on whether it's criminal or civil. So it depends on what your burden of proof is. But putting aside burden of proof and just looking at it from a forensic perspective, I would have thought that's probably not enough to get a possible or a feasible. You probably want to get a bit more than that. Certainly in a civil case, I'd want to get more than that. But again, it depends on how much you can get. So now I think I postulated by reference to an example in Melbourne from the case that we were doing, what happens if you attack the major premise and you establish that the major premise is incorrect. You really don't have, need to put to the expert that the conclusion is incorrect because it must be the case if the major premise is incorrect that the conclusion is incorrect. But if you're taking the minor premise of the expert's reasoning, then I think you really do need to get the expert to say, well, yes, that's if that's incorrect, then I accept that my conclusion might be incorrect and then get them to go to some degree so that, you know, given a you know spectrum of X to Y, if it was X, you'd expect the conclusion to be more likely right than wrong. If it's Y, then you'd expect it to be more likely wrong than right or something like that so that you get the percentages or the apportionment right in some way and you can make the submission at the end of the day. Again, I think that's an excellent demonstration of how you can get that in the fact finder's mind by using percentages or spectrum. So thank you. Another golden nugget from Ian. <laughs> when cross-examining experts, of course, not all of them are cooperating in the way that you would like them to cooperate. So I was just wondering if you had any guidance really for controlling, I'll phrase it in this way, difficult experts. So someone who's just going off track or will not stop talking and it's been a bit difficult. It all comes back to the analysis, the case analysis for the expert. So if you've decided you need to get A, B and C out of that expert, you just have to get A, B and C out of them and you don't give them the opportunity to talk about D, E and F. If by some chance they find a way to talk about D, E and F, you remind them that they're there to be talking about A, B and C and though they might want to talk about D, E and F, that's not what you're asking them about. So, again, it's just a matter of being focused enough on your case theory that you simply deploy and apply your case theory and you don't let the expert take you away from your case theory. Do you think having short questions helps with that, if we just think about it on a practical sense? Or doesn't it really matter? It always helps in the control sense, but it only helps expert or non-expert if the question is right so you have to spend the time getting the question right and with experts it's sometimes a bit harder to get it right because of the jargon so working up the right question to be asked at the right time is always going to be the best mode of control over the expert if they're just belligerent and difficult that's great you know you want them to be as belligerent and difficult as you can possibly have them be you know at the end of the day as one expert said to me after he belittled me for asking him to produce his notes 
having said that in 20 years of giving evidence, no one had been crude enough to ask him to see his notes before. After I'd asked him about eight questions, I think there were exactly eight questions I asked him about his opinion. And I said, that's it, I'm moving on. And he said to me, but you haven't asked me about my opinion. And I said, I'm sorry to tell you I have. End of the day, it's what you want to get done. You you get it done. Let them be as difficult as they want to be. It's actually to your advantage. I completely agree with that when someone's being difficult and belligerent. I know that some advocates really shy away with that, but sometimes I think if that's what you're going to do, then all the better. Everyone else can see it. <laughs> Use it to your advantage. Just looking at closing speeches, because we've obviously analysed, in this conversation, we've been able to talk about the analysis of the experts' reports and what we would get from cross-examining them. But within closing speeches, I was just wondering, how do you deal with expert evidence that is not so good for your case? I'd assume that you address it anyway, but I was just wondering how you do that so it's not as damaging. Bad evidence is bad evidence, and I guess it doesn't matter whether it's from an expert or from a lay witness. You, You still have to deal with it, and we know that the thing that that advocates do least well is deal with their bad points. So you have to deal with the bad points. You have to make whatever you can within your ethical compound about what has been said or how it affects your case. If at the end of the day, if that expert's evidence is accepted, you're going to lose your case. I don't think there's any reasonable way, nor is any credible way both from your case's perspective or from you as an advocate's perspective to do anything but say we ask you to accept our expert but if you don't accept it then we accept that we can't win. When you are getting ready for court I was just wondering is there any specific technology that you use such as specific devices or apps? It depends on the court Um, if it's an all electronic hearing which is still in the minority position. It sometimes happens on appeals, generally happens appeals in the federal court. Then I will be using two tablets, doesn't matter what brand, but two reasonable size tablets. One which has the evidence, appeal book, case book, whatever it is in it, and the other one that has the authorities and so that I can pick up either one to use as I need it. And then the PC, which is normally on the bar table in those kind of cases, will have everything else on it. So there will be three devices running in an all-electronic case. In a non-all-electronic case, I'd probably only have one tablet and I'd have the rest of it in hard copy, though depending on how technologically savvy my junior is, it may well be that we have all the authorities on a, on a laptop or another tablet and she will be getting them out for me. And I say she because 90% of my juniors are female. It's kind of that, I leave that part of the how you prepare it to them because they're the ones who are going to have to find it and dig it out and give it to me when I need it. But as far as I'm, I'm concerned, I treat it just like a piece of paper. Are there any particular apps that you use? Apart from Simple Minds, no, not really. There are a whole range of databases that you can use to organise your material, but I find that most of it is dependent upon which firm is briefing you because they have some commitment to some provider and that provider will have a particular platform of choice. So there's not much point me getting used to one platform when the provider is going to provide a different platform. So it's just a matter of picking it up and getting used to it and without wishing to sound like the troglodyte that I am, largely that's dependent upon how good my journey is at that. What about demonstrations or visual aids? So, for example, if you wanted to show the court a diagram, do you stick to presenting that on paper or is that done electronically sometimes? It depends on the case. So if it's an all-electronic case, it'd have to be demonstrated electronically. If it's not an all-electronic case, then it would be in paper form. And sometimes, more in cross-examination than anything else, I've been able to use with quite some effect in the sense of it being memorable that the kind of an overlay 
process. So let's say you've got a building case and there's an issue about how certain structures went up and and, at what time they went up. If you have an overlay, like a, a clear plastic overlay, which has printed on it the development of the site, or let's say I had an unlawful clearance case not that long ago and it was about the clearance of certain trees, significant trees, to show the before and after photos on transparencies where you could overlay the two on, on each other and made a strong visual impact about that kind of thing. So if it was with my own witness, I would rehearse it with the witness. If it was in submission, I would rehearse it with my junior before trying it in court. If it's in cross-examination, obviously you don't get to rehearse it with the other expert, but you'd want to rehearse it with your expert, I think, just to make sure it works. Moving to my final questions for you, and you have given us such a wealth of knowledge and expertise here. What are your three practical tips that you would give our listeners about improving their advocacy when it comes to experts? First one is do as much analysis as you possibly can. There'll never be a time when it's not rewarded. It may not be obviously rewarded, but it will give you that stillness in court that you need to be able to deal with the expert. Creating the habit and applying the habit is the best precaution, prophylactic for um, those times when things go wrong because when we're under stress, we revert to habit. So do the analysis uh, and as much as you can. The second is do your digging. So get onto Dr. Google, get onto whatever you can get. Talk to other people in the area. Talk to other members of your chambers who have cross-examined that expert before. Or um, if you're calling an expert and you don't know the expert yourself, talk to other people in your chambers who have called that expert and get some kind of idea about what they're like. Do the analysis of the person that is the expert so that you understand who they are and you can then bring a kind of more holistic approach to that expert. If they're the kind of person who's very booky, then you have to find a way to make them less booky. And, you know, if they're the kind of person who's very chatty but not very technical, you have to find a way to make them slightly more technical. So you have to do the digging to know what you require to get from the expert and how you're going to get it best. And last, I think this is not just about experts. I think this applies to all our advocacy is to seek and give feedback, okay? Because one of the things that we never get as advocates, apart from when we go on courses like that one you came to in Melbourne and courses like Keeble in the UK, is feedback. There's a terrific scheme that runs over here in South Australia where young advocates, that is non-silks, can put their names down on a register and judges will put their names down on the register and after your case is finished and after the appeal bureau is finished, you as the advocate can ring the judge and ask for feedback, not about your case as in the merits of your case, but on the on your performance. And a judge can ring you and, and talk to you about your performance. And the only caveat to it is besides the letting the appeal period run and all the ethical things that we have to do, is that you have to be prepared to take the call. So you may not want that judge to give you the feedback, but if he's on the register and you're on the register, then you sign up to do it. But that doesn't mean we can only we only have to wait for judges. We as advocates, juniors, seniors, etc., are quite well positioned to be able to say to other advocates we see in court, you know, that went really well or that didn't go really well or whatever the case might be. So give yourself feedback and give others feedback is the third thing. Thank you. And finally, what are the details of where our listeners can connect with you online? I'm on LinkedIn and you'll be able to find me by just by inserting the name. My chambers is called Jeffcott Chambers. So you can contact me through Jeffcott Chambers, their website is jeffcottchambers.com.au. Jeffcott is J-E-F-F-C-O-T-T. It's a unique English character who came out to South Australia and became a Supreme Court judge. And not long before he became a Supreme Court judge, he shot someone in a duel, so he was charged with murder as well. So interesting character. 
and the last way is through the South Australian Bar Association or the Australian Bar Association's respective websites. And the South Australian Bar is SABAR, that's S-A-B-A-R.org.org.au. And the Australian Bar, if you just tap in ABA, you'll get it. Or Australian Bar Association will get me through there. Thank you so much, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you. It's been really enlightening. Thanks, Bibi. Big pleasure to do it. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time. 